millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Ben Eshmade and this week we're visiting our archive looking back to March 2016 when we spoke to composer George Benjamin and countertenor Yeston Davies just before the premiere of the then new work Dream of the Song. Performed as part of a three-concert series entitled Benjamin at the Barbican, this podcast has turned out to be a document of the composer and the composition process just before the premiere of this piece. I was a uh, fanatical muso from the age of about seven or eight, and I knew what I wanted to do. And all I can remember is I had to wait so long. <laughs> the great thing is he says, because I want you to, let's say, I want these triplets need to be very, very in time or if they're not you won't sound sarcastic and that's my point and so that's that's a gift that we don't get with singing any music by dead composers so george benjamin is a musical alchemist who takes voices words and stories and transforms them into a new element of glistening sound vibrant color and timeless art and on the 18th and 19th of march 2016 you could have witnessed a performance of his acclaimed opera written on skin a premiere as mentioned of dream of the song and an intimate lunchtime concert of his works do note this interview was recorded before the passing of composer and conductor oliver nusson in 2018 so first, we visited Benjamin's home in West London to learn more about the composer himself. Composers lead uh, in this modern age of very busy lives. I mean, where, where are you at the moment? Um, th- this this programme that we're going to be talking about is next March. But I presume you kind of have to work a long way in advance and you're busy <laughs> juggling. Well, I'm about to go to New York tomorrow, in fact, to go to the USA stage premiere of my opera written on skin. Oh with the Mahler Chamber Orchestra. I'm not conducting, but I will be conducting a concert there in the mostly Mozart Festival. And then I come back, and then I have to conduct the world premiere of Dream of the Song, my new piece, Amsterdam with the Concert Gebouw at the very end of September. But apart from those two things, I have virtually nothing in my diary for the next six months. And in fact, for the next three years, because I'm writing a new opera, and my life is really dedicated to that, almost to the exclusion of anything else. I get the impression from what I've read and, and, and from meeting you that if you could get away with it, you would write music all day long, every day. 
I wouldn't want to do that <laughs> because I like to have some life in the middle as well. But also I love contact with musicians. I, in um, this June, I was at the Albra Festival in residence for about three weeks, working with a symphonietta and working with the Mahler Chamber Orchestra and with my great friend Pierre-Laurent Aymar and various other wonderful musicians, Oli Nassen, great friends of mine. And I just had the most wonderful time. So I love to, to make music. I love to travel as well. But um, I need to be very seriously marinated in pieces in order to write them. And if I leave them for too long, it takes me a very long time to get back into them. And if I really do concentrate on them, then they begin to flow. And uh, that's the ideal thing. And to get a sufficient degree of cohesion and unity and to hear very precisely what you're writing, it's best to concentrate really purely on on the task in hand. Debussy once said, you either live or you compose. And he he lived plenty, but I do know what I do know what he meant. <laughs> You seem to spend various parts of your life as a teacher, a conductor, and a composer. But it sounds like all of those help each other or or, or more intertwined. Yes, that's the case. But in surprising ways. Uh, As a conductor, uh, I gain immeasurably from my experience of working with live musicians and I'm privileged now to be able to work with really wonderful musicians mm. and that 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 is a really a very great joy and I learn things perpetually not not only about um, composing but also about conducting every time I do it but actually the difference between composing and conducting is extreme composing is something which comes note by note gradually, within silence, reflection, meditation on the structure. Every decision has ramifications way beyond the individual note itself. While conducting is something communal and something social and something which usually gets done within four or five days and therefore, and it's energetic and physical, it's absolute, the the subject is music, but you couldn't be further apart. (laughs) Um, Teaching, that's different. That doesn't usually have much impact on my conducting, but it does on my composing. Mm. Um, I've taught and I've loved teaching for the last, yeah, 30 years, more, in order to explain some harmonic, structural, rhythmical, aesthetic, stylistic element to a student. So I really have to understand it myself, and that forces me to keep on learning. Plus contact with young composers, some of them extremely gifted, I'm very proud of my students, is immensely stimulating and, yes, can occasionally sprout new ideas. You achieved success fairly early on, as I'll see the, 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 the proms performance when you, you know, when you were 20. Do you think that was a good thing? Or do you wish that you'd had a more gradual growth into, into the composer you are now? I thought it was a wonderful thing at the time, and I still think it was a wonderful thing. I was extremely fortunate, extremely fortunate that the BBC... Robert Ponsonby decided to put my work in the proms and, and that the BBC Symphony Orchestra and Mark Elder did such a wonderful performance. Um, but I had been fortunate before in having such fantastic teachers, particularly Messiaen in Paris, to whom my first orchestral piece, Ring by the Flat Horizon, is dedicated. No, and I had also already the support of my publisher, Faber Music, with whom I've almost reached 40 years. Wow. So I was 16 when we started were sort of making contact. So I was a uh, fanatical muso from the age of about seven or eight. And I knew what I wanted to do. 
then I knew I wanted to do this. And all I can remember is I had to wait so long <laughs> because, you know, when you're 11 and 12 and you dream about seeing a piece of yours in, in print, like all the collection of scores that I've got, and to hear someone really good play it as opposed to the very willing but not necessarily competent school friends that I had. So, <laughs> um, and I was already in Paris when I was 16 with Messiaen. And so, yeah, it was very exciting, but I, I, but I had felt that I'd waited a long time, plus I worked very hard. And the other thing is, regardless of their quality, those early pieces of mine, they still get played. So I don't want to quote a French song, but I don't regret much. <laughs> I know it's different for everyone who, who composes, but I mean, how do you see the music? I mean, is it fully composed in your head before you put pen to paper? Well, I presume you do paper rather than computer. I do paper, yes. I think that's a myth of music is fully composed in your head. It's meant to have been the case with Mozart, but I wasn't. it wasn't the case with Beethoven. And once the harmonic style during the 19th century became more complex and language began to mutate, then, no, the act of composing creates the music. And often ideas that one has in one's head for textures or for lines or for anything, they're not as good as what happens when you actually compose with material. And often they're clichéd, clichéd, clichéd. And that's big mistake. You want something fresh and authentic in a piece at every moment. So Lutoslavsky had a nice idea uh, about describing composing that you, you're flying very high up in the clouds and gradually you descend and elements of the landscape become visible and the nearer you get, they become clear and then you land and everything's done. The fact is there's a lot of confusion and mystery involved in starting any piece of music. You, you don't know what you want, you don't know how to do it, you have no idea and maybe what you want is related to what you've done before and therefore not very interesting. How to find the way into really genuine creativity and come up with something really fresh and interesting and new? Well, one learns a little bit as one goes along. And I do have a little bit more idea of how my my mind and my ear work than I did many, many years ago. So you can stimulate it, you can help it, you can channel it, you can challenge it. And then, if you're fortunate, things take off. It's a very peculiar process to go through. And one hopes that a piece of music gives the, gives the feeling of a spontaneity, as if it was invented really in the head, as it were, in real time. But that's an illusion. Let's sort of slowly move into these three concerts. The first one features the premiere of Dream of the Song, as you mentioned already, uh, is, is conducted by your friend Oliver Nusson. Do you consider him a contemporary? He's a little bit older than me, Ollie, as well. It seemed quite a lot older than me when we were young. It's about eight years older than me, but we've been great friends since the end of the 1970s and really very great friends. I'm so lucky. So he's been a wonderful friend to me musically, a wonderful friend to me altogether. Plus, we we laugh an awful lot. We speak very frequently and he's the funniest person <laughs> that I know. Every sort of... Um, you wouldn't know that. You wouldn't guess that. You wouldn't guess that? Oh, heavens. I went out to dinner with him a couple of nights ago and the jokes he was telling, I could not, be, I could not even begin the first line. <laughs> anyway, uh, but we're very, very great friends. And apart from being a magnificent composer, he's also a magnificent conductor. Mm. 
So I'm delighted that with the BBC Symphony Orchestra, BBC Singers and Essen Davis, he'll be giving the UK premiere of this piece, yeah. What conversations do you have about the music? Um, when we're talking on the phone, sometimes suddenly the conversation gets very uh, intense and extremely serious and I can have some real nuts and bolts conversations with him about any element of music. OK, let's talk a little bit more about the actual piece itself. Where, where, did, where did this come from? How, how did this begin? Many things, many divergent things, too many things maybe to mention. But uh, one of the inspirations was the idea of writing a work for countertenor and female chorus in which the sound of eight solo singers would, as it were, surround and encase the sound of the countertenor. Quite similar registers, very similar registers, but so different in timbre and sound and in expression as well. That's one thing. Then... um, The poetry that I've chosen comes from two sources. In fact, it comes from three sources. The primary source, what the countertenor sings, are 11th century Hebrew poems from Andalusia. This very little-known poetry has been translated in a large volume called, in fact, Dream of the Poem by the American poet Peter Cole, who was very helpful indeed to me while writing this piece, giving me advice about the background to the poetry. So that's what the countertenor sings, and it's secular poetry. Very beautiful. The chorus sings poetry also from Andalusia, from Granada, but it's 20th century, and it's Lorca, and it's a specific cycle of poems which was inspired by 8th, 9th century Andalusian Arabic poetry, which is the case with the Jewish poetry, also from the 11th century. So in a a way, there's a hidden source to all the poems, which is Arabic poetry of the extraordinary civilization in Andalusia of the 9th, 10th century. And then there's this Hebrew poetry translated into English and the the Spanish poetry in Spanish. Beyond that, I'd have to read you the poetry. The, The subject matters are varied, but there's quite a lot of rumination about the passage of time and mortality, I suppose. But it's diverse as well. Let's take a pause there and catch up with countertenor Yestin Davies, who will further unravel the mysteries of Dream of the Song, though at this point the finished work has just arrived in the post. The first time I encountered George's music as a sort of countertenor soloist was uh, written on skin, really. I was sent to George's house and I essentially to go and sing to him because... At the time, he was, I think, at the end of writing the piece, and it had been commissioned um, amongst various houses, but especially by Aix en Provence, where it was premiered, and the cast was set in stone. He knew he was writing it for. However, this this piece was going to do um, quite an elongated tour around Europe. So I was mooted for, to replace um, the Countess of Bejamator at certain stages. So George, um, he'd heard me on the radio actually and, and he'd not put the name to the face or the face to the name. I went and sang to him. That was it and then he sort of briefly explained what the what the, the piece was about and he gave me a copy of his Into the Little Hill on CD and and sent me off. And then I went to the, the Premiere X to watch and I, I can't remember ever seeing anything that I wasn't so struck by. I remember the end of the when the, the, the second curtain comes down, just the power of the music that you could feel the sort of the united breath of the audience being expelled as the curtain went down. I was it was really really moving. The primary impact was so strong that I knew that this was kind of a a good move to be part of it. Mm-hmm. 
is he a, is he a composer who writes strongly for the voice? I think everybody you speak to who was involved with Written on Skin certainly would would agree that he is one of the most um, singable of composers. And that's not to say that it's primary colours and, and and the kind of music that people would necessarily be able to easily listen to first time, but but it's very apparent I think to the audience that the singers don't go through any discomfort George gets the lyricism of, of a human voice and and of also the he writes very well for countertenor in particular the way he wrote for Bayesian in the bottom of the range as well which is something which I I really appreciated and also the the, the way that the voice is set against or set amongst the, the texture of the orchestra it just seems to it's different from say i don't know if i compared it to say handle where you feel like you're you're sitting on the surface at the top of the you know the tune you're sort of in amongst the the tapestry of sound in george's thing and you're not fighting against the sound either you know so it's a very very much a, a chamber sort of feel to it even though you know the the orchestral palette is quite big in in written on skin I thought it might be nice, uh, one of the, the recent appearances, though, though I know you're at the Barbican quite a lot, but one of the recent appearances was for Nico Muli's Sentences. Yeah. Both composers now writing and, and, and writing very well for the countertenor, but interesting to maybe ask how, how they differ. Well, I think they differ um, just simply as, as composers in, in the, the, the sound world they inhabit. It's very obvious that they come from different schools. However, I think where they're similar is that like you said, they do write very well for the person in question, in particular for me with Nico, is, is he is perhaps, I say more forgiving, but Nico, you can contact him during the writing process and he will send you excerpts and say, how do you like this? Or, whereas I know for a fact that George is very much, you know, the way he can concentrate on his work and, and let it come from his pen is, is by almost closing himself off at a sort of monastic existence, I think. Mm. I know from just even having conversations with him about um, the new work, he has very specific times of the day in which he's available to talk, uh, which I quite like because I think it's so easy to contact people these days with mobile yeah. phones that it's you take it for granted they're going to answer. And in fact, just before I started this interview, I was having a text with him and I, I, I find myself very apologetically saying, oh, sorry for disturbing you because <laughs> have I just in, interrupted this aria and he's now going to have to sort of throw it on the bin? And I can imagine that sort of happening. <laughs> but George has conducted a lot of his work and when you get to sing his work for the first or second time with him you you find out things which you may not do correctly maybe whether it's rhythmic things um, and or, or dynamic things and he will he will say no please will you do this because I mean underline underlining it all is because I spent four years sitting in a dark room writing it but what he but, but the great thing is he says because I want you to let's say I want these triplets or need to be very very in time or very very metric because if they're not you won't sound sarcastic and that's my point and so that's that's a gift that we don't get with singing any music by dead composers that's the, the very reason i mean love to have Handel say look the reason i wrote this is very specific because i want you to sound melancholic or whatever it is we don't get that and it makes you look back at the music that you sing a lot of the time whether mozart or Handel or gluck and reevaluate how what we think is authentic and how we mm. approach authentic sort of historical practice
softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. When you were approached to be involved in this concert, how was it explained to you? Well, in the very basic terms, it was a song cycle for countertenor and orchestra with a female chorus and that's as much as i got and and to be honest that's as much as you need when you're asked to mm. give a premiere of a george benjamin work uh, albeit the, the british premiere um so i was completely flattered to, to be asked okay maybe the next stage is then you get a score in the post is that right yeah. so the next stage exactly is you um i got the sto- score in various um I'm holding it now in various stages, actually. To start with, I sort of had perusal score, which I've got here. In the front, they have sort of property of favour music. And then it it says manufactured uh, on 18th of March 2015. And then I look at the vocal score and this says manufactured 7th of May 2015. And so there's there's obviously little corrections and various things, maybe to do with the the, the laying out of the score, actually, rather than notes. Mm. But yeah, I'm, I'm a sort of a grade eight standard pianist who didn't do anything but learn the pieces for the exam. So I'm not the world's greatest sight reader. However, it, it doesn't take long to decipher this sort of music. I've got the, the vocal score is always reduced to a piano score. So it makes it slightly easier. Um, and I was sent a recording of the, the mm. premiere, which was, this is, <laughs> speeds everything up by a million it's funny it's like a sort of looking at a map you see straight away it's by george benjamin i don't know what it is there's something even the first page actually is very reminiscent to the first, the opening sequence of um written on skin at times something stops and the singer comes in and i think that's it. it's like a it's a full full stop and a, and a or a coder and saying right here we go this is the singer he's entered i was looking at some of the reviews of the of the first performance and there was a great thing where someone described it as the idea of looking at water and the reflections of sunlight on water i'm excited just from that description of what it possibly could sound like yeah i mean it does it does sort of have that quality a lot of the time and in fact the the allusions to whether it be moonlight there's a lot of moonlight in it but i yeah i like that sort of translucent reflection of water is is very much the thing and in fact that rings a bell for one of the movements where when i was trying to learn it on the piano playing the piano score it's it's very you know it's sort of percussive you can hear all the movement of the strings on the recording you don't see the conductor you just listen and i thought i can't tell where the beat is because the way in which 
the strings are coming out of each other it did feel like it was rippling and it's it's so nice that it links back to 18th century music which is the score is simply a way of transmitting what the composer has in his head the quickest way to transmit what they want performed and isn't that amazing for the composer to sit there and have that something that you know pressing on genius that that composers such as george have a lot of the work that you do in your career you, there's aspects of acting when you have a work like this where it's the poetry is so key do you do you feel that you're a, i don't know for a better phrase a storyteller or someone who has a message or an idea to get across i think that's a it's a nice way to think about it but certainly the the, the place that starts is looking at the poetry and looking at the the text and putting yourself in perhaps some sort of imaginary scene for each song obviously i can never get away from the sort of acting side of it because i enjoy performing so there's always going to be a bit of me in there and i think that's true of all actors actually in general that people say oh so and so is a wonderful actor um but actually there's quite a lot of them in in that that thing that is the thing that um etches them out from somebody else i've just worked with mark rylance uh, who you know everybody is is raving about he's just you know a wonderful performance stage such good timing and spontaneity but when you work with him and you know him and you see him in the dressing room and stuff like it's not to devalue what he does but there's so much of mark in his performance or certainly so much of his performance in mark i'm not sure which one it is and i think i tend to think oh is that that's a bit like singing really because singing is so personal to it's not like a violin where you can you can sort of switch off the end of the day and put it away in the cupboard you you do sleep with your instrument in your body (laughs) and you wake up in the morning and it's there and if if we, when it comes to performing George's songs, you know we we're always, we succumb to colds and all those kind of things, which sometimes people can enjoy your performance so much more. Something comes across when you're on the edge and you don't have much voice because you're feeling a bit ill, and you give something completely different in the performance, which you think is a dreadful performance, and everyone says that was really really alive, and you think yes because I gave everything because I had nothing. Uh, but hopefully, fingers crossed, none of that will occur. <laughs> none of those things. I've been falling over a lot recently, but I try not to again. <laughs> Back to the composer, George Benjamin, and I asked him about the intimate lunchtime concert of his chamber works, Lunchtime with George. I believe this is kind of a sort of a relaxed affair. Not for the viola players. <laughs> They're playing my piece, Viola Viola, which is really, I think, the hardest, the hardest viola duet ever written in any case. It's really hard, and apparently the Marla Chamber Orchestra viola players are going to do it off by heart, which has only been done by one pair of players before. It really is very hard, and there's no cellos and violins to hide behind in the piece, so it's a very, very hard piece. I hope it will sound really good in the St. Luke's um, acoustic, because it needs a generous acoustic, because the idea of the piece is that there are two violas on the platform, but if you, if you were to close your eyes, you might think there were five and a half. And what else is being played? Um, a young and very talented British composer pianist called George King is playing my piano piece, Shadow Lines, which is, I've written about five pieces for the piano. This is the one that I prefer. And I wrote it in 2001 and two, initially for my great friend, Pierre Aymar. George has recorded it, in fact, on CD, and I didn't work with him at all, and the recording is good. So I was very happy that he was able to come along and join us. And there's a very early piece of mine, 
Flight for Solo Flute, played by the Marlow Chamber Orchestra's sensational first flautist. And there's my little transcription of Purcell, I think, one of my favourite fantasias initially for viola de gambas, but I transcribed it um, for a rather curious group of celesta, clarinet, violin and cello. Um, and then I think finally there's my transcription of a couple of, well, a canon and a fugue from The Art of the Fugue by Bach for a slightly larger group. And, and there will be some conversation. These seem to be pieces that you're particularly proud of, if I had to link them, link them together. Maybe Viola Viola and Shadowlines are amongst my better. I haven't written really enough chamber music, you know, and I wish I had written more. And I hope that I will write more in the future, though I've got the opera bug rather badly. I interviewed uh, Philip Glass, and he, he described uh, opera as the ultimate composer's device, the, the ultimate thing they can do. I mean, would you, would you agree with that point of view? Well, it is an extraordinary and thrilling form, one that I wanted to a- attack for many, many, many years and was unable to do until I met Martin Crimp, the British playwright, who has had a transformative effect on my work. And I'm in the starting my third opera at the moment, and it's in a monumental challenge to deal with something so huge with so many notes across a really large span of time it must be very hard to let let your music go yes it's very hard when you think this, those sounds with quite a degree of precision have been locked inside a head for two three years but equally there's nothing more thrilling than see it coming to life. Mm-hmm. And what's wonderful about opera, as opposed to doing concerts, is that the preparations take more than two or three months. And so you have rehearsals with just the music and the singers and piano. Then you add a little bit of direction and more and more direction. And then comes some staging. And then comes the stage itself with a set and the lighting. And then comes the orchestra alone. And then the orchestra with the singers. And then everything put together. <laughs> and it's the most thrilling journey. Uh, I was very fortunate that in Aix I, we had the most fantastic cast for whom I designed the work. And the most fantastic orchestra, the incomparable Mahler Chamber Orchestra, mm. for whom I wrote the music with their sound in my head. It was a fantastic experience, and I'm overjoyed that at least three of the cast from the original production will be singing it in the Barbican, including Barbara Hannigan and Christopher Purvis. Was it a natural decision to conduct? Because I would imagine if I've done all that work that I would not necessarily want to have the responsibility on the night to, to bring it to life. Well, with my first stage piece, Into the Little Hill, I deliberately didn't conduct the premiere. That was done by my friend Franck Ollou with the Ensemble Moderne in Paris. With this one, well, there was one conductor I went to to ask if he would do it, because this is someone who's been, uh, perhaps I won't name him, but very important to me over the last 30 years, and he had been trying to get me to write an opera ever since I was about 25. So I felt that, in a way, now at last that I'd done it, that it belonged to him, but sadly... He wasn't free. He couldn't. He just absolutely could not do it. And then there was some deliberation. There was one other person I thought of as well. But then with the director of the Aix Festival, Bernard Fokrul, we discussed it. And then the feeling was, well, it would be, might be interesting if George does it himself. Mm. And so I did it. Yeah, it's a huge weight of responsibility. Can you, can you imagine? 
<laughs> what harm as a conductor I can do to me as a composer within 90 minutes but at the same time with this with this surrounded by these wonderful musicians in the pit and on the stage they support I felt such support from them and so it was it was it was it was in the end I think it worked out let's move to Martin Crimp the story of this opera I was, I was reading the synopsis and it, it's, it's incredible I suppose it's the best way of describing it is I suppose like a, a very gory fairy tale maybe tell me a little bit more about how you came to the subject matter and then how the working relationship worked the subject matter well there's two things to say about that the only requests from Bernard Fokrul, a man I'd known and liked enormously for over 20 years, uh, he'd been asking me to write an opera for that long. Um, the only thing he asked in Aix-en-Provence was, gently he asked, please, if you could set it here on this terrain, I'd appreciate that. So Martin and I immediately began to search for stories to do with Provence. Now, the, the history of Provence, and particularly the age of the troubadours, is immensely, immensely rich. And fortunately, Martin's oldest daughter, Catherine, was studying at Cambridge at the time, and she was studying something to do with medieval poetry, I, I think. And she went to her professor to say, my dad would like to know, do you have any stories from medieval pr Provence that could have a link, could be good for an opera? And he provided her with five or six stories very kindly, and she then showed them to her father, and there was one. There was this one mm. called Le Coeur Manger, the, the Eaten Heart. And Martin was enthralled by it immediately, and he showed it to me, and it's only five pages long. Um, I was enthralled by it. I was enthralled by the fact that it's so simple, that it's so dramatic, but its conclusion is quite extraordinary. Quite extraordinary. It'd be an extra extraordinary for an author to come up with something like this uh, today. And therefore it was decided very quickly. Mm. That was decided very quickly. And as for the collaboration between Martin and me, well, in the first thing we did, Into the Little Hill, which was a sort of testing terrain for us, he wrote the, the text, and then I composed it. And while he was writing his bit, I didn't say very much, and I didn't uh, talk too much while I was writing the piece. Uh, we talked enormously before he started the, the text on choosing the subject matter, the Pied Piper of Hamelin, and the, the style, the aesthetic and dramatic style used. But once confidence had really shown itself between us, then we collaborated more closely on Written on the Skin. So you know, we talked enormously about all manner of things to do with the nature and the style of the work. And then he would go into Perda and disappear for almost a year, in fact, to write the, the text. And then he'd hand it over to me. I virtually... He's so What he does is so perfect. I asked to change nothing, really. We've we mentioned an, 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 at the heart of these three concerts, the Marla Chamber Orchestra, you talked about understanding and admiring their, their sound. I, I mean, for you, what is their sound? The first time I heard the Marla Chamber Orchestra was when, when the beginnings of the project in Aix started getting underway. And the festival invited both Martin and me to hear Pierre Boulez's performance of, and Patrice Chéreau's direction of The House of the Dead of Janacek, which was magnificent. And I can still hear the freshness, the articulation, the beauty of sound of what was coming from the pit in, in that performance. Then I conducted them in Lucerne. Uh, a year or two later, I did a program which ended with Schumann's Second Symphony, a piece that I love, and it, their playing is just a dream, a dream. Their, their sense of ensemble, they're much easier to conduct than many orchestras because their ensemble is so tight that a lot of the time they don't need you. And uh, it feels like some sort of golden, uh, sort of Aeolian harp in a way. And that was all the, the contact that we had well, before I started writing the opera. But the, those particular qualities were in my mind 
while I was writing the piece, as were indeed the individual qualities of the singers for whom I designed the opera as well. Mm. So I wasn't writing in abstract, I was writing for a specific sound. I, I tend to start pieces very slowly and then write at an enormous pace towards the end. With Written on Skin, the first scene I, I, I remember took me six months to write. And the last six scenes, fully orchestrated, took me four months to write. So it, the acceleration is gradual, but once it gets going, it's, it's enormous towards the end. It's possible it would be nice just to be a sort of note-producing <laughs> machine. Not machine, but entity. Yeah. That, that to, to, when it flows and it goes even smoothly and goes fast and you're flowing with it. The original skin, I finished it on my 52nd birthday on the day and I was intending to do that. And when I say finished, I wrote the last note, literally the last note. Uh, I've only got one few period of a few weeks of distraction in the whole of next year away from my new opera. And this is one of the, this is in fact the final thing in a very short period. So it's a very important thing for me and I'm very greatly looking forward to it. Both George and Yeston are artists and people brimming with creativity and focus, both extremely generous with their time and answering my questions. I'm Ben Eshmade. Thanks for listening to this archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast, here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds and theme series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review. That really helps us get the word out. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.